of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperius Rex! Hello and welcome to a new episode of Third Degree Burn. Kirk and I are back with our continual coverage of Namor, the Submariner. We will be covering issues 6 and 7 in this episode. Um, and I think Kirk has the first synopsis for issue 6. Uh, I We talked off air, but Kirk, I don't think there's any news. I don't think there's anything been going on. Uh, unless there's no, something you might want to talk about. I don't... Nothing major except Barbie's in the theater. So's Oppenheimer. And I'm sorry that I missed the... Uh, the Black Panther that had apparently a uh, a thickly disguised version of Namor in him, uh, but yeah. I didn't see that. So uh, well, you have it's on Disney Plus. So if I've watched that's how I watched it. I watched uh, Wakanda Forever. Um, I'll have to renew my subscription to that. Yeah, um, I do have one observation about uh, the series that has occurred to me. Um, maybe this is better in comments later on, but the issues are getting progressively darker as we go, literally darker as events are taking place at night or there's huge masses of black that are printed in the panels. Uh, both last adventure lasted two issues and also uh, this one that will last actually two and a half issues. So uh, that, that's a side note that I want to at least share for those that don't have it right in front of you. Um, um, it was a trend that I noticed in the first dozen or so issues, but it doesn't continue for the entire series. No, and I would say that was possibly because Burn, I think with uh, issue five or four, he started doing his own inks. And that's where we talked about this in our last show, where he is starting to use the duo shade more. And we had yes. those great underwater scenes. Yeah, You don't have as much in this these issues because more of it's above ground, but I do see your point about the darkness and that may have to do with the subject matter or the, the fact that burn was inking himself. Maybe both. Maybe it was intentional. Okay. So I'm going to start with my uh, synopsis, two page synopsis. I really got uh, creative on this for Namor number six, Namor number six, since I was taught to pronounce it as hammer Namor. As a kid, I always slip and try to fall back into that. So it's more number six. Thicker than water, says the, uh, the title on the cover. The interior title is different, however, as you'll see. This is written and drawn by John Byrne, lettered by Ken Lopez, colored by Glenn Linus Oliver, edited by Terry Cavanaugh, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco, and Submariner created by Bill Everett. We begin this installment with a flashback to Berlin one year ago. As Byrne likes to do, he will seed a subplot an issue or two before it comes to the forefront of the storyline with a random page or two. While this drives some readers crazy, I find it engaging as I'm in it for the long haul and reading from month to month. The, to the casual one-shot buyer, this would be most frustrating as yeah. it doesn't connect to anything. So it implies that Byrne is writing for the comic book subscriber each month in this series. In the modern city of Berlin, we see two shadowy figures skulking down alleyways to a door marked and padlocked to the sign verboten, which means forbidden, 
But the lock doesn't stop the larger, more massive man with the yellow crew cut who tears the wooden door from its hinges. They enter the darkened warehouse to a plug in the center of a stone floor. And just like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, a circular staircase opens up, descending to a sub-basement. The shorter pale man berates his lackey and throws an electrical switchblade, revealing a female figure wrapped in white strips like Eliza Lancaster in The Bride of Frankenstein. She's in a glass tube with a helmet, also obscuring her face. So we've not seen directly the faces of any of these three characters. Cut to the ocean liner Sea Queen, where Cleb is recuperating from his heart, heart attack as he's seated on the deck chair wrapped in a heavy blanket. He and daughter Carrie discuss the reasons why Namor may have separated from them when Cleb notices they've changed course to the south. Carrie sees something on the horizon. In a two-page spread, it's Namorita swimming and playing with a pod of dolphins. Out of sight, out of mind, reads the interior title. Well, the dolphins frolic in the ocean, forming a circle formation with her, just as Namor did with them back in Fantastic Four number six. As she breaks the surface, Captain O'Malley of the Sea Queen calls to her via megaphone to come aboard. She asks, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he asks her inside to the bridge cabin. They're tracking a large moving blip on the radar that's in the middle of East 106, the region where man and Atlantean avoid because of the garbage and sewage from New York and New Jersey collecting there. Nina reluctantly agrees to investigate. She swims through the dark and foul waters until she sees a large mass of brown vegetation that is clumped together and wriggling. It's huge, unformed, and almost the size of the ocean vessel. Cut to New York City, where Namor is being arraigned on charges in surrogate's court. Sorry. He's being arraigned on charges in surrogate's court in Manhattan. I'm unfamiliar with uh, this, but it's not significant. Um, he's actually not being arraigned. He's denied charges, so they're out on front steps. Where you would expect a press statement or press conference to be held, except it's just the opposite of that. A statement is declined to be made on the front steps by his attorney, Mr. Klein, as a mob of reporters press in for a statement or answers. They are all being observed via binoculars by the Mars twins, who lament that everything had not gone to plan between the Griffin attack and Phoebe's luring Namor at the recent Oracle rooftop unveiling party. Desmond berates her again, and in another move of casual abuse, he suddenly shoves her off the rooftop edge. She falls like Lois Lane, shrieking, which gets everyone's attention. Namor sheds his shoes and flies in business suit up to catch her, making a sly reference to another superhero that flies to the rescue. <laughs> she thanks him by pasting him with a deep kiss in midair. Desmond is satisfied that he has her hooks into Namor now as he walks down stairwells and down an elevator to the ground floor where his chauffeur waits who is agitated over the news coverage. Not about Namor's rescue, but about a news bulletin from out to sea where a large mass of seaweed is approaching and overtaking the Sea Queen. Carrie and Caleb are concerned with the stench, and Caleb tries to approach and investigate it. They briefly see Namorita, who exposed... Wrong. They briefly see Namorita exposed, 
who calls for help as she's being pulled back in. She's being used as bait to lure others closer, where one by one, they too are engulfed. The seaweed pulls away from the ship. Back at Mars Towers, Phoebe has changed into something more comfortable as she begins to seduce Namor when a phone rings, interrupting her. Namor notes that she's very mercurial and how quickly she shifts from soft to hard, much like he can and does. He begins to think that she may be a new love interest for him. Uh, let's put a pin in this to discuss this later on. Uh, then he begins to undress, or at least loosen his tie and his jacket. Phoebe reveals that the call was about their ocean liner, the Sea Queen, which a monster is attacking. Namor finishes shedding his clothes and flies off in his trunks, leaving her stunned, much like Lois Lane is abandoned. Namor laments his top speed won't get him to the location for two hours and might exhaust him. Seventy-five minutes later, however, he arrives to see the Sea Queen looking deserted. He comes aboard and wonders where all the passengers and crew are, with all the lifeboats still in place. He turns and is startled by a huge human-shaped hand made of brown and green seaweed that easily dwarfs the ocean liner like a bath toy about to grab the boat or, or fall upon it. Next issue, sludge, spelled S-L-U-J, a misspelling of the word sludge, S-L-U-D-G-E. Okay, let's back up a step here to uh, the pin. Namor thinks to himself that the Mars twins possess wealth that dwarfs his and that they may be good tools in his plan for global conquest. This is the first that we hear of this plan in such bold terms. I don't recall Namor saying earlier that he was out for global conquest. He, but he has not. It's it, it, This is the first hint that that his... Actions are not necessarily uh, altruistic. Altruistic. That's, that's a good word. Uh, it, 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 up till now, it seemed like he had kind of turned a corner and was trying to use the a different tack instead of attacking the uh, attacking the land dwellers. He was going to use this vast wealth of his to kind of clean up the oceans and kind of straighten things out. Uh, so this is the first hint that he may have a bigger plan in mind. I have wondered if perhaps this was foreshadowing for his blood oxygen imbalance and that he might be starting to slip and that we would find he was going to go off the edge a little later on. But that is not correct. Anyways, well, that's that, that hasn't been to your point. That hasn't been brought up since it was brought up and dropped in the first issue. That he has to, that he has a little monitor. To, well, you don't even see him wearing the monitor anymore. He doesn't have. Um, it's hidden in his belt buckle somewhere. I guess. I guess. I would have been surprised if we had a close up later on in a reveal. <laughs> had Byrne decided to go this route, that would have shown that it was shattered or that it was broken or that, you know. Yeah. But that's, well, that's seemed, not where the story goes. Right. He seems to have dropped that plot line altogether. He has not brought it up. Um, we're just, I guess, to assume that. He is still, you know, maybe that's what he that scene we had in the other issue, prior issue where he was in his um, his pool in his apartment, yes. you know, yes. or maybe that's how he's, you know, if he just has to dunk himself every so many oh, often, then he probably corrects everything. But that's my thinking. Yeah. But yeah, this is um, 
this was an interesting story. To your point, it does start off with a future story. And Byrne does do that a lot of hinting, giving us little hints of, uh, he does like a handoff. He has a story that he sprinkles in a future story in it. And then that story ends and you start the new one. And he just kind of, and they kind of overlap as he goes along, which yeah. is to your point. It's a so good way of drawing it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we should uh, let John know uh, <laughs> that the, obviously he's already read the series, but we should uh, send him an alert saying, ha ha, your favorite part <laughs> has just taken seed in this. That's right. It'll pay off later. Right. Um, I thought the artwork in this was pretty good. I liked it, um, especially the kind of the intrigue. It was um, of this beginning story with these two shadowy figures. Of course, we know because we've covered these issues in a prior show, but we know who this is. But it's, um, <clears throat> again, Byrne kind of showing his reverence for earlier art, uh, Marvel work and that he is... Uh, bringing in these kind of past stories and he's kind of reviving them. Uh, I thought it's interesting that it's a wonderful splash page of when the, the smaller figure, which I, we assume is some kind of a doctor. He's a very pale faced older gentleman and he throws a switch and it turns on all these lights. And this, he says, this has been, his lab has been locked up for like 45 years. And this woman we see that is very, Bride of Frankenstein-like. She's in mm -hmm. a tube with a kind of a greenish liquid. And the liquid is... It, you would assume that at one point this liquid filled this tube. But it looks like over the years it has dropped and now it is right above her nose. I thought that if that's the case, that's a nice detail that Byrne put in showing that the passage of time and that this liquid is either slowly leaked out or evaporated or something. So it's slowly losing whatever this chemical is, it's probably keeping her alive. Yeah, I had the, uh, I had the impression since she's in this uh, plexiglass to be glass, considering that we're talking about 45 years earlier, yeah. which was World War II. Um, I had the impression that's what the helmet, the deep sea helmet over her head was that that was breathing for her. That right. She's, right. That's, that's where it was supposed to be. You also see some cobwebs on this page that conveniently obscure the face of the larger man. Yeah. And I think the coloring, there's miscoloring on the, uh, the shorter man, the doctor, the doctor, um, because in my trade uh, collection of these issues, he looks black with a white beard. Now, I, I don't recall the original printing. Do you have that right in front of you? I have, I have a scan as well. It's not the actual scan. So I'm looking at a recoloring, but he doesn't know. He looks, um, he looks kind of pale, pinkish purple. I would say in the earlier pictures, particularly <laughs> where he's going down the stone steps, he's shaded white, as we know he is supposed to be colored. Uh, very, very pale. Yeah. Uh, Stalbino as a result. Anyway, I, it was just something that, that caught me off guard as I was looking at this like, what? Because his skin tone was not right. I, it may just be that he's in the shadows, uh, but yeah, I, it's, you know there are occasional coloring errors as they produce yeah. these trade paperback collections, and I think this yeah, is there's good. yeah there's corrections as they go along. Uh, it's interesting what he 
he keeps bringing in. Um, I was saying you were saying. Um, I was I just pronounced his name as Caleb. You were uh, you were pronouncing it differently. I don't know if I'm right, but anyway, uh, it's the yeah. the the scientist that befriended Namor in the very first issue and created his blood um, oxygen low detector. And the daughter had started a romance with Namor. And as all comic book stories go, she worries about her safety because he's a superhero. So she breaks it off and her husband, her father had a heart attack. So he's recouping on this ocean liner and burn, you know, Got them off stage so quick after like the third issue, she was they were gone. And he kind of keeps bringing them back, and it's kind of kind of go somewhere leading up to the next couple issues. But it's like Byrne doesn't know what to do with these two characters. She was he ended that romance so quickly that, and there was no more attention paid to it about you know her struggling with. Her feelings for Namor versus wanting to make sure she's safe and her father's safe. But they keep kind of bringing him back into the story, but he doesn't seem to know what to do with him. It's possible that he had some storylines laid out and that higher management said, no, no, don't do that. Or I can't imagine anybody telling Byrne not to do something, but I think it's it's entirely possible that he had some storyline planned for them yeah. and then got shelved for whatever reason. And he's bringing them back, in my view, as representative of the human race. Here are the humans that will help him, that will be the Greek chorus, that will occasionally comment on the action and explain it, and will occasionally be pawns to be put in risk and jeopardy to drive the story forward. Um, they're supporting figures, but it, not as major as we thought they were going to be. Exactly. And it does, it gives, um, it gives name or agency. Because he's not particularly fond of land dwellers or, or surface dwellers, but he has grown a, a strong attachment to these two. So, if they are in peril, obviously he is going to be more motivated to save them or solve the problem or defeat the bad guy or whatever it is um, than if it was just random people. Although he does, he's not callous towards strangers. He will. Uh, he does have a concern when he flies out to the uh, the ship and notices that it's missing. He is concerned of uh, the other passengers. Uh, yeah, and, of course, his, his cousin. With the news helicopter, where he doesn't, he doesn't have to help them, but demonstrating his super heroics, so to speak, he does help them, although he right. kind of dismisses it. But he's not beyond helping individuals in distress right he won't let them just um he won't just uh, um you know the old i don't have to say i don't i'm not going to kill you but i don't have to save you kind of argument that he doesn't yeah. have to but uh then yeah. burn has this nice callback with the dolphins that he basically he comes out and tells us that these are the same dolphins from uh, ff number six and i went and looked and yes it is true it is, uh, Namor did in a throwaway panel describe some frolicking just the same way with dolphins way back in 1962 when uh, issue six would have come out. It's not a major feature of that story, but it's nice to see him anchor things or 
uh, continued continuity. Well, next um, Burns thing. He loves that. I made a, an error here. Uh, we didn't even discuss the cover, which this is probably as good a time as any since we're going to start talking about Nina. Um, the cover is basically her cover. Um, mm-hmm. It's dark. It's black. It's got a lot of little globules around. She's At first, I thought she was drowning in the oil that Namor was drowning in last issue because it's so similarly shaded. But she's um, she's underwater. She's obviously trapped by, I'm going to call it seaweed, although it's very indistinct argle-bargle. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a floating head of Namor, almost like it's in an air bubble, uh, superimposed over the, the right-hand side of the screen, looking in, in concern and shock at her distress. Um, and that's, you know, that's about enough for the, the, the cover. They just keep juggling around the masthead a little bit um, to say Namor, yeah. the Submariner, uh, thicker than water. Uh, the, the, quote, the quote, I believe, is probably from Shakespeare, but uh, the, the famous quote is, blood is thicker than water. And since she's a relative, right. is, that's where I think he was trying to lead you. But in fact, there's a second meaning, as we will find out in late in this issue and next issue. Um, yeah. I, I my only comment on this cover is I don't think he needs the floating head. I don't I either. That looks like that might have been a last minute ad. Maybe somebody, maybe that's an editorial. Like, well, it's Namor's book; he has to be on it. Although he is in the masthead. Uh, that's true. He's in the I don't corner. Th- yeah, in his business suit. I don't think he's needed. I don't think just take him out, and you get a nice shot of her in peril underwater, like he had covered in whatever this sludge is. That's um. Uh, sludgy, gooey, sewagey, something. Um, I think it would have been a more powerful cover if they'd taken his floating head out. I agree, except for one thing. You remove his head, and it's unbalanced then. She is slightly to the left on the cover, and slightly, um, I want to say slightly raised uh, to make room for the title at the bottom, Thicker Than Water. But the, the composition here is that he's, if you remove his head, she's not centered in the, the issue cover. Oh, yeah. would be he would have to he would have to center her or add yeah. some more bubbles or something. It, it could be done. It could. Um, oh sure. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, what do you think of the two page splash? His trademark. The, uh, it's nice. The net's almost a, that's almost a a direct copy of because isn't in FF six that's. You see Namor jumping with the dolphins like that, and then you cut to him doing circles under the under the water with him. I think that's a, yes, yes. The composition, although the size is completely different, but yes, you're right. The sequence and uh, the point of view, I believe, is correct as well. I'll have to go back and look for that. Yeah, maybe I'll share it online. And this uh, this certainly plays into Namorita's uh, more would say zest for life than Namor. She is much more carefree and yeah, she's younger, but she's uh, more playful. And and I think this, that, that, that works well with her and these dolphins who are, you know, just kind of, you know, she's just having a good time and she's going out to meet the, uh, the, the ship because she's, she's kind of become friends with, 
uh, Carrie. I've not forgotten yep. her name. Carrie. Yes. Yes. Daughter. They become friends. So she's and she's. I guess I assume they're coming back. They've been on this ocean voyage, and they're coming back to New York, and that's why she's swimming out to the ship to meet them. Um. And it's never. I don't think it's brought up at all, but is it just a coincidence that this ship is owned by the Mars twins? This is something he has not had his hand. Desmond has not had his hand in arranging. I don't think he, he didn't know this, this, this creature was going to attack. No, um, we don't even know that because at this point they haven't shared that information with us, Right. but it will become apparent that uh, that may have been a, a link after the fact just to connect the various elements of the story. That or just to prove that they are that wealthy that they tend to own everything. So, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I did. I, I like this because the storyline is following <laughs> her, not Namor, all the time. Therefore, this, you know, she's the lead into this story. Um, and, and because I don't know a lot about her, I'm intrigued by her, and I agree with you about her lighthearted attitude, her frivolousness. She has some great facial expressions, mm-hmm. uh, particularly she's talking to the captain, being puzzled, being disgusted, um, but you know, being talked into or talking herself into going to explore this. But she seems to already know and fear this area on her own as an Atlantean. So, well, I don't think. To your point, I don't know a lot about. I've never heard of East One whatever. Well, it uh, that was a little bit of research I Say did because I was that that was a little bit of research I did because I was curious about did New York really dump its garbage out in the ocean? And from what I've read, yes, they've been dumping stuff out there since the twenties, and up until nineteen eighty four. Now they dumped it just twelve miles out. And then from 84 to 92, so at the time of this story, they were still dumping garbage. They had moved it to 106 miles out where the continental shelf drops, and it goes from like 600 feet deep to 6,000. So they thought, well, we're going to dump it in the deeper water, and it won't be a problem. And then in 92, they stopped it. So they don't think they dump anything now. It all It's either processed or they ship it out somewhere else. Uh, I think they ship it to New Jersey to be processed. But yeah. so, <clears throat> so at the time Byrne was writing this, this was still ongoing. And I, I, it amazes me that up until the early 90s, we were still taking, I think they said 200 and, or 30 tons of garbage a day was going out. And it was garbage, raw sewage, things like that, which is what plays into this. So this is. True. This that's why I think he's calling it East 106 because that's how far out they're dumping it. So that's a. Um, we need to you, talk to our New Yorkers you, and ask them. You know. Are you familiar with the uh, 1980s uh, cop drama called Wise Guy? Yes, Ken Ken Wall. Yes, as it got towards the end of its run and uh, the 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 plots started casting about for a direction. There was at least one arc, one major arc that dealt with uh, sewage that was, uh, you know, garbage on a barge that was being hauled around and um, 
whether or not it was in fact going to be allowed to come to port or whether what it was doing. I don't recall all the details of it, but I remember it vividly that 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 was one of the first times I visually saw the issue of New York uh, garbage being hauled about and dumped. Mm-hmm. Just a sidelight that flashed into my memory. Well, just from watching my my mostly from watching Seinfeld, but you always hear people talk about how polluted the this the, they say the East River and the is it the what's the other one? Hudson uh, what's the Hudson, Hudson River? East. That's the two kind of rivers that surround Manhattan, correct? I don't know my New York geography. I think that's true. Let's check with Paul and find out. Yeah, find out he'll, how bad uh, how bad the dumping garbage is. And it, 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 they said the not to get too much in the weeds on this, but the the problem was, yes, they didn't fit, they didn't want New Yorkers did not want to dump the garbage in the ocean anymore, but none of them wanted to live next to a garbage processing plant. So that was the rub. Like we can't throw it in the water, but nobody wants to live next to a plant that's going to either they either turned it into uh, compost or they can, some way they can, through heat, they can turn it into fertilizer. Um, so at this point, but if this is, you've got, you know, almost 80 years of, of dumping out here. That's why um, Neymar, you know, she talks about how bad it is when she gets down there. And I can imagine that how bad it tastes because she's having to basically uh, like run this stuff through her gills. Right. And and how dark it is, and that's when she comes across the. And I don't know if it is you. You, you call that a seaweed? It looks like something organic. Yeah, it's but, more than seaweed. It's just I, I'm struggling for a word to describe it. Yeah, he it, and they don't ever really in this issue that I'm going to cover next. They do kind of go into detail about what it is. Um, but what did you on the on the I want to bring up because Bern has done this. He did it on the very front page where we see Berlin, where he has obviously taken an actual photo and he has photoshopped it or manipulated it or inked over it to give it a little more realistic look. It's not hand drawn. And he does that with the, uh, I think, the courthouse that we see a New York skyline upper left that is an actual, I think, is an actual photo. And then we see the, I, or, yeah, or the, you're um, right. The courthouse that he has drawn over again, and he started doing that with the FF in his later, in like the later half of his run, and I like it. It gives, it makes it look, um, it gives realism. a little more realism to it. Yeah, yeah. And then we I get. Agree. The, I wouldn't know what surrogate <clears throat> court is. Maybe we should ask a uh, a lawyer from New a York. A lawyer State. that's yeah. in New York. Maybe know anybody? Gee, if only we knew. <laughs> we'll have to ask. Well, that's a carryover from where he was being sued by Roxon, right? Because he attacked their headquarters with a griffin. So I think they're suing him. And this is the result of, you know, Byrne said in the last issue he was going to jump jump over all the, the legal business to get right back kind of in the action. So this is, I think, several weeks or months later uh, from our last issue. Well, I had and, been, this was like the... <clears throat> Hey, that this is immediate because of discussion between Phoebe and, and Desmond. Uh, they would have had this discussion, you know, 
long before, but it sounds like this is fresh. I also I noticed agree. something else. That same page that has the photo references. I had I misidentified this. I thought that his lawyer, Mr. Klein, uh, just a generic lawyer, was standing behind a podium with microphones on the steps. But now that I look at it, no, he's, the briefcase. he's holding up his briefcase to fend off the microphones. There is no podium there. Yeah. So I got this. I got this completely wrong. They're trying to exit the courthouse, going down the steps, and, uh, and there was no press conference. I, I'm sorry, I mis misread that completely. Well, they're trying to make it a, a press conference. I mean, obviously, yeah, he's not coming out to make a statement. They've got police that are uh, trying to push back these reporters. They're all got mics and cameras shoving in their face, and it's a typical, you know, no comment as he's leaving in his in a typical burn all black suit. Namor I will say looks pretty good in a in a totally black outfit. And then we get the the and the thing with Phoebe, which is very reminiscent of Superman, where he it's like Lois Lang falling from the helicopter in yes. the first film. He and again it just shows his casual kind of sociopathic tendencies that he doesn't have any feelings for anybody. He'll do whatever he needs to get his goals. And he just shoves because he know. well, he's assuming Namor will save him or <clears throat> with the odds of all the superheroes in New York, somebody will save her. It could be daredevil. It could be Spider-Man. Uh, it could be any number of people, but he pushes her off. What looks like she's standing on the very top. Well, I get the impression they're on the top of a, I mean, you're on top of a roof. The roof is not completely flat. It's got like a little wall around the outside edge. And it looks like she's standing on top of that for him to push her off. Because if she's, if she's in a, you know, if there's a two foot or three foot wall there, I think he'd have a harder time trying to push her off. It's kind of a nitpick, but I didn't understand how he was doing that. Yeah. I, I'm going to back page when the, back to the, the steps of the courthouse. Burn has done a, a perfectly matched, repeated image of Namor behind his lawyer Klein and a couple of reporters to the left and a cop to the right. Duplicated the image from above, below, but cropped it or masked it as if it's through pair of boxes. In the original issue, as I was reading this, I got real uncomfortable with that because I read that not as binoculars, but as a gun sight. Um, uh, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but that's not where the story goes. No, I really like he's... the fact that I like it when Byrne uh, replicates his images, at least for an effect or, or uh, something like that. I know other people have gotten upset about the uh, the Avengers uh, under uh, the, in the Secret Invasion series where I can't think of who the artist was, but he would repeat the same panel three, four, five times in a row or intersperse it. And people were getting real upset saying, geez, you know, that person would change their expression. You shouldn't, you know, we're, we're paying for the same image just being duplicated five times on this page. But I like it when Byrne does it because he does it for effect. He does it for a very particular reason. Right. And he doesn't then repeat it. Right, it doesn't. Right, and I don't. Yeah, I don't. Um, 
giving credence that argument that you know I paid my money and I want it's like the the Alpha Flight um, snowstorm fight that people complain yeah. about. Um, what's odd is in my issue, and maybe it's supposed to be because of the binoculars that Desmond's using, but there's a coloring change. The cop oh. that's directly behind Byrne that looks like he's uh, keeping back a woman in a green suit and a man in a... Uh, well, in the top panel, he's a purple suit. The bottom panel is light blue. And the cop's hair goes from being brown to white. You're right. I see that, too. And the skin tone of the gentleman is different. It's darker in the below, in the, in the, the bottom panel. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe it's the colorist. Yeah, I don't know if, if that was done on purpose to I don't think so. That would they represent that that's supposed to be the binoculars causing that. But could be. There's some type of high tech binoculars he's got. Even the color of the microphones the reporters are holding change from being yep. a dark royal blue to a gray. Yep. I also, when you started talking about the binoculars, uh, in the next page, when Desmond and Phoebe are talking, uh, he's holding them and they're white. Then he holds them over to and they're to, blue uh, her, and they're blue. Yeah. And then he pushes her and they go up in the air, but we never see them again. Whether they fell off with her or whether they landed on the floor, they just disappear. Well, <clears throat> they landed on someone's head, probably. Hurt. Not that it's important, but uh, no, no. I didn't catch that till just now. I do like the when Namor flies in the air. You see his shoes getting kicked off. He, Burn has done where the the folks behind him they're all one color to kind of isolate Namor in the center of that page where he notices that that she's falling. He doesn't know who it is at this point. She's just falling, and then he does. You know, he says this looks like a job for the Submariner. And he, you know, kicks his shoes off and flies up and catches her. And she, and all Byrne needed to put in there is, you know, I've got you. And her to say, I've, but who's got you? Uh, yeah. That'd be a little too close, I think. And then she gives him, a, you know, a big smooch, which is, and at this point, I think we, we feel that she's doing this on behalf of her brother, but later we th we get the feeling that maybe she is actually starting to develop uh, feelings for Namor. Yeah. Which her, which her brother kind of berates her for later. We'll and, see. Uh, yeah. And he's just, of course, he's he thinks he's the master manipulator. And he's, everything goes his way. And he's got, you know, he's got all his, he's like the chess master. He's got all his pieces in place. And he thinks he's going to, um, you know, because since... Issue one, he just wanted to control Namor. Um, and then we get then we get into the the sludge story with you know kind of an exposition dump with the the chauffeur saying he's all agitated and because this thing of um, at this point just looks like a like an oil slick or something is uh, approaching the ship and then in the next scene you see that it's kind of it's kind of growing. It's 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 overtaking the ship. It's kind of oozing onto the ship. And this reminded me a lot of um, uh, Godzilla versus the Spog Monster. 
Because in that movie, the monster Hedera is created by pollution. And it becomes kind of a sentient thing. And it starts out as kind of a slick like this. that then takes form as the thing that Godzilla ultimately fights. But mm. that's what I got a big, you know, because it does look like seaweed when it's coming aboard. And, and Caleb's like, you know, he's, you know, she's like, we got to get out of here, his daughter. And then he's like, no, no, I got to, I got to know what this is. So he's kind of running into danger. And then y'all talk about the stink too. That's why it's, I think it is some kind of a uh, raw sewage that has somehow come to life. Yep. Because particularly because it's got tentacles. Yeah. Note and, the uh, call letters on the, the helicopter that's flying over the Channel 7 live copter. W-X-Z-Y. Y. Put a pin in that. Um, we'll come back to that at the end of the issue. Okay. Um, I wonder if there is there a Channel 7 in New York? 7 is, uh, is the frequency for ABC owned and operated uh, channels across the nation. Uh, in every major city, the ABC affiliate is usually Channel 7. Um, and that's, the. Uh, well, I'll tell you now. I'm from the Detroit area originally up in Michigan. And the, the ABC affiliate was WXYZ and still is. And so I think this is just a play on those call letters because it's Channel 7. It's, you know, why it's Detroit. That doesn't make sense because they're in New York City. But uh, I could be mistaken. It may be, in fact, uh, a, a real station, uh, but I don't think so. But uh, it calls to mind my memories of WXYZ. Well, it's interesting that if, if Channel 7, you said, is ABC, yep, which is owned by Disney. But at this time, Disney did not own Marvel, I don't think. Nope. Not in the 90s, no. It's just a coincidence that – because now, if it was being done now, obviously it would be – uh, an ABC affiliate probably because that's owned by Disney and they would want to make sure they, you know, same as, um, you know, <clears throat> if it's, if it's a DC property, it would have something to do with Warner Brothers. Um, but yeah, they get, they get kind of sucked in they find, and they, they, um, Namor mentions, and this will come up later that it's sucking away all her strength. So she's not strong enough to get out. And then it grabs uh, Carrie and Caleb and brings, sucks them in. And then there's a kind of a horrific scene of her scratching the, uh, the deck with her fingers. And then it just leaves. Then we cut back to um, Phoebe. And she was, I think, the way she's drawn, I think she's wearing just a bathrobe and that's it. I think she's changed out of her outfit and she's wearing just a robe and Namor doesn't seem to mind. Um, and he seems perfectly fine to, uh, and he's very taken with her. He calls her an extraordinary creature. Um, and he calls her, which is interesting. He calls her mercurial. And you brought that up. Well, later yep. she uses the same word to describe him. To her well, brother. Namor Mercurial, to tell you the truth. She my does. understanding of the word is that it's it's changes hot to cold, very yeah. uh, temperamental. Um, probably also another uh, 
use from Shakespeare. Yep. Well, and that's that was brought up in the prior issues when she when he first tells her to basically seduce Namor. He says she tells him, "Well, he's unpredictable. You know, he's got a temper. You know, I start messing with that, and I could get hurt, or things could could go wrong." And he basically Desmond's like, "I don't care. Do it anyway." So I think that's what they're going on because she does call him. He's calling her Mercurial, and because he says. Um, he, um, she goes from the softness of a harper seal's pelt to the iron hardness of sea sea serpent scales. We are very much alike. So I think that's what's drawing him to her, that she can switch between being, I think, very feminine to being like a very hard businesswoman. And he, and he's, he's got this goofy smile on his face in the top page in the next one where he's thinking about could it, you know, and that's his brings up his revive, you know, into my revised plans for global conquest. So maybe this is something that has come about after he decided to start the Oracle Corporation and kind of uh, clean up the oceans and do that. So maybe something else has come up since then, and he thinks that maybe um, they could have maybe a partnership, or they could. He could. He's thinking he could use them while they are trying to use him. Yes, that's what I think the point is here, yeah. that everybody's trying to use each other. Yep, yep. Uh, which is different from Namor, because he tended to be kind of straightforward, although he did have some schemes from time to time, but he tended to be more straightforward. Uh, well, we also don't know, since he he set forth his agenda to get the treasures of the world and uh, at his disposal and do something good for the Earth, and form Oracle in issue one, we don't know that he verbalized all his plan to right. um, care uh, to, to carry and to uh, collab. Um, you know, he, that may have just been the public face that he had another agenda underneath, but exactly. I just, I was surprised to read this, to see him talk about global conquest, because that's not where I thought this was going. Caught me off guard, but nonetheless, but, he he recognizes that the Mars twins are an asset, and perhaps he could turn them or twist that to his mm -hmm. advantage. And I think that's the point. They're both scheming to use the other person at this point, right? And his global conquest could refer to from a a corporation standpoint. He doesn't mean he's going to attack the surface, but maybe he's going to just take it over with the Oracle Corporation and run it. So he'll have a little bit of control that way by having um, control over companies and things like that. More of a kind of a Lex Luthor kind of a thing instead of just yes. um, attacking them. I see a lot of I see a lot of similarities between the way Byrne wrote his Lex Luthor <clears throat> in the Superman book and the way he's writing Namor now as the the more ruthless businessman instead of just a Kind of a hot-headed um, Atlantean that just wants to do battle with the surface all the time. We get a couple gorgeous shots of him flying. I like the um, the overhead shots, looking up from the buildings. Uh, another, I think, photo manipulated uh, image of him flying over Manhattan and out to sea to 
and it takes him, I guess, two hours to get out to the ship, which we assume is still at this one, about the hundred mile mark away from New York. Um, and that's where he finds that everybody's missing and we get the giant hand, that last splash where we get a hand that is easily five or six times the size of this boat coming out of the water. So I, I, there's a discontinuity here. One, he says, even at my greatest speed, it'll take me close to two hours to travel such a distance of 100 miles. Then you turn the page and the, and the caption says, 75 minutes later. So an hour 15 later, he's found the ship, which is going in circles. So the argument is, so did he put on a burst of speed or did this entire scene move closer to him and is moving at a tremendous speed faster than anybody realizes. But, you know, if there was a point here, I don't think Byrne finished making it. Well, I, I don't, and I don't, I meant to look it up. I don't know what Ohatmu says. His, I don't think he's necessarily supposed to be particularly speedy with his little ankle wings, but that give him, you know, if he's doing hundred miles in two hours, it's giving him what about 50 miles an hour flight time. Um, but then he's getting there. Either he's just a, a bad judge of time, or he did, to your point, put on a little bit of extra speed because he he does mention that he's worried that he doesn't want to arrive at the ship exhausted and has spent all his energy flying. So it sounds like while he can fly, that's not necessarily his his uh, favorite mode of transportation because it does seem like it takes a little bit out of him. And then we get the big hand again. So that's a, that's a nice teaser. Teaser. Yeah. You want to move huge, on to. Huge hand. Yeah. It is a big hand, which almost um, translates a transfer tr right to the next, um, the next issue with the cover. Are you ready for uh, issue seven? Just about, you know, when <clears> I was reading this off the stands, or comic book shelf, uh, comic shop shelf, as this was coming out, um, the thing that occurred to me was sewage, seaweed, giant hand, Submariner. I immediately flashed back to his his earlier series from 1968, the Submariner, uh, Prince Namor, the Submariner, where in issues two and three, the villain is the Plant Man, and he and Triton take on a a beast uh, made of seaweed called the Leviathan, as I recall. Anyways, that's what I flashed on when I saw this. It's like, oh, I'll bet you the villain is going to be Plant Man, that he's doing a riff on that, which was wrong. <laughs> okay, now let's go on to uh, okay. stuff. Well, I think this ties into this whole ecological um, and pollution that has been kind of the undercard of all of these issues. Yes. Um, and that was... You know, that was big in the 90s about uh, taking care of the, uh, you know, pollution and things like that. All right. I have got, I have written a synopsis for issue seven. And I apologize, mine's a little long. But uh, uh, we cover it, but mine will cover the same things. Um, this came out, our writer, of course, is still John Byrne. Our artist and anchor is John Byrne. He's inking himself now. Colorist is still Glennis Oliver. A letter is Kenny Lopez. 
Cover art's by John Byrne. Our editor is Terry Cavanaugh, and the editor-in-chief at this time was Tom DeFalco. And they've got a release date of August 7th, 1990, with a cover date of October 1990. Um, and I think the only other book that I could find that he was writing at the same time or doing was he was the writer on Iron Man. So Iron Man 261 came out at the same time as this. But again, that was him writing with John Romita Jr. doing artwork. All right, Submariner, or Namer, Submariner number seven, titled That I Be Shunned by All. And our players in this issue are Namer, um, Caleb Alexander, Carrie Alexander, Phoebe Mars, Desmond Mars, Namerita, and a yet-to-be-introduced uh, scientist called Carolyn Sheridan. And Headhunter uh, makes an appearance in this issue as well. We open on the Anderson Biotech Lab in New Jersey. Earlier the same day as last issue, two scientists are discussing the giant creature that happened that appeared off the shores of Manhattan. See last issue. Carolyn, Carolyn Sheridan, a scientist with a sacred face, tells the others they are responsible for the cre creating the creature. Jump to the present and Namor circling overhead as a monstrous figure rises from the ocean. The avenging sun ponders the creature's origins. It casts a horrific stench and seems to boil and fester. For our benefit, Namor recaps the last issue. He was with Phoebe Mars when she received a call about an attack on the ocean liner Sea Queen. The same ship Caleb and Carrie Alexander were aboard. The same ship his cousin Namoretta was going to meet at sea. When Namor flew out to the ship, it was abandoned. As he was investigating, the creature rose from the depths. End of flashback. Namor sees the monster turn towards New York and follows. He encounters a news helicopter in distress and low on fuel. The pilots ask for help, and since he's heading towards New York, he flies the aircraft to safety. Flashback to an hour prior to current events. The mysterious headhunter's headquarters. She is trying to find news coverage of the ocean liner attack, but the news outlets have lost all live transmission. The ocean liner is owned by the Mars twins, and if they are involved, there's money to be made. A group of shadowy heads agrees with her. Cut to offices of the Mars Twins. Desmond Mars storms in and demands to know where Namor is. Phoebe explains the Atlantean flew off when he heard of the ship attack. Her brother scolds Phoebe on letting Namor escape. He wants Namor in their power no matter what. Phoebe explains Namor is not easy to control, but Desmond grabs her wrist and before things can escalate, Headhunter barges in. She is there to collect. She helped Desmond with an inheritance problem a few years ago. Now she wants her due. Desmond offers his sister to Headhunter according to their agreement. Phoebe pleads for her life, but Headhunter, pulling out a large, a, pulling out a pair of large finger blades, promises she will not die, but she will live forever. Cut to New York. Cut to a New York dock. Namor has landed with a news helicopter along with a grateful crew. He flies out to meet the creature as it approaches the Verizona Bridge. Our boats are on scene and hosing down the monster with a chemical foam, causing it to bellow in pain. The thing oozes through the bridge and threatens to swamp the small fireboats. Namor quickly pushes the boats away, but the creature overtakes them and engulfs Namor. The Atlantean prince can't breathe inside the muck. The monstrous substance burns his skin and drains his strength. Namor spots people trapped in some kind of cocoons. Cut to the place that they are trying to keep the creature at bay with the chemical foam but with little success. 
a spot Namer fly out of the slime with a cocoon. His strength is fading fast as he flies towards Manhattan. Back to a police barricade. The scientists from the beginning of the issue are trying to reach someone in charge. They tell the officers they created the monster. Carolyn Sheridan flashes back 10 years. She and her team at Anderson Biotech had managed to create a simple form of life. Her Bosch rushed to announce to the world that they, were, that they had developed, and two days later a man broke in, claiming they were tampering in God's domain, and attacked Carolyn with a beaker of acid. He flushed the experiment down the toilet and took his own life. All the research was lost when the computers were smashed. The cops find it hard to believe her story when Namor arrives with a cocoon. He asks Carolyn what it is. She says they programmed the life form to be highly adaptive, to mutate as needed to each new environment or situation. Cocoons could be a way for the creature to digest its food. Namor knows that there are hundreds more cocoons inside the creature, cocoons filled with the passengers of the Sea Queen and his cousin. He rips open the membrane and frees the woman trapped inside. The woman awakens, disoriented and screaming, Get out of my head! Carolyn asks what the woman, what she means. The girl tells her she felt like someone was inside her mind while in the cocoon. Dr. Sheridan explains to Namor that they programmed the proto-life form with a crude telepathic ability. It should be able to draw information from the minds around it. The more time the creature lives, the more intelligence it will absorb. Dr. Sheridan gives Namor a vial of gene-scrambling virus they developed. Namor must inject it into the center of the monster. Namor flies off to confront the creature. He dives deep into the massive sludge and swims towards the center. His strength quickly fading, he opens the vial of virus. The other scientists tell Carolyn they must leave the dock in case the virus does not work, but she refuses. She must face her responsibility. Suddenly, the creature bursts from the water in rage and pain. Feeling betrayed because the virus is not supposed to cause it pain, uh, she slugs her fellow scientists and they wait to confront their son. The creature rears up out of the water, waterfront, towering over the onlookers. It mutters, Mother, and collapses into a mass of liquid slime flooding the city. To be continued. Dum, dum, dum. Um, exactly. Lots of. Lots, this is almost a horror episode. Lots of uh, lots of setup. Kind of uh, we kind of get a payoff, but it won't pay off till the next issue. Um, lots of intrigue, more a kind of environmental tampering. We get a little bit more about the headhunter that we have found that she. We don't really know a lot about her, but she somehow. It's kind of like making a pact with the devil. She will solve your problems, but then she's going to come for her due at some point. And it it appears that she wants to to sever a head. And we've seen uh, hints of something in her office. Well, in this one, you see some a group of looks like about six heads that look like they're on the wall, mounted like trophies agreeing with her and she converses with him. So again, we don't know what the, um, what her goal is or, but she does come for Desmond and Phoebe and he, well, he offers his sister to her as payment. Again, showing how callous he is about life and his sister. Um, a lot of flashbacks yeah, way, in this one too. The way the turn draws that, uh, 
sequence in Headhunter's uh, apartment slash office, penthouse apartment, um, there, this Greek chorus of one, two, three, four, five, at least five or six heads, my first reaction was, oh, that's just a group of flunkies that are standing next to her, yeah. a line that are all yes men. I did not, you, you know where this is leading, so you right. kind of let the cat out of the bag. But, uh, yeah, this, this is uh, turning into a horror book very quickly as she unveils finger knives, you call them. I would have yeah. said they're paws much like, uh, like Wolverine or Barber's shears that she's waving and, and snapping at the, uh, the Mars twins as she comes to collect her due. Right, they, they do look like elongated straight razors. Yes. She fits on her fingers. Um, and that's a nice... Burn has drawn her. She is, uh, she's an albino. And in her, in her offices or her apartment, it's, everything's bathed in red. And she tends to dress in red. And she wears sunglasses. Um, but it looks like... I can't tell if her people are... Their people are dressed in red as well, but it looks like there's a red light within, kind of a reddish pinkish light within her, I guess because she can't her and she's wearing sunglasses all the time because she's too sensitive to the light, but. And we don't know a lot about her. All we know is she says that anytime she has some kind of connection with the Mars twins, and they seemed a little afraid of her. Desmond did at least in the last issue I think, or the issue before, he. When her name was mentioned, he seemed the only person that he seemed to be kind of afraid of or concerned about. As long as we're talking about her, as she's in her penthouse and somebody is, I think, fiddling with the TV channel trying to adjust it, that young lady is dressed in some sort of a, a T-shirt, uh, hot pants, and uh, tall socks. But the T-shirt is labeled ticker, T-I-C-K-E-R. I don't that know is, where that was supposed to be going, but obviously a play on ticker tape, ticker probably uh, in, business. And uh, um, online, it lists, that's the character's name that she's introduced as ticker. That's the, oh. and maybe to your point that, you know, she is like a modern day, because it seems like she is changing the channels for headhunter and she's asking her to find more news and it looks like this ticker person is flipping through channels trying to find more information on the boat attack and it says they've lost live transmission and i um i didn't bring it up but the when namor rescues the helicopters they say that the monster kicks up some kind of biostatic interference so they can't contact their base. That's why he has to fly him back to to safety. So it seems like whatever this thing is, it's kicking up some kind of interference field that doesn't allow the the live coverage. So the, the all the police out, news outlets have lost their their uh, feed. So they can't. Nobody can tell what's going on. Uh, There's something else We're kind of hopping around here. <clears throat> something else about the helicopter that occurred to me. Uh, Neymar is needed to fly them back to uh, to New York City. They could just as easily have set down on the ocean liner. Yeah. 
Now, admittedly, that's not home base, and that's not a solution, but that was an option. Nobody brings that up. It's like, hey, the ship's deserted. It's just steaming in circles. That would have been a home base for them. Not a home base, but a, a safe haven for them. But that's okay. Well, unless they are worried that this thing will come back. Because it does seem to, when we first, it's a it's a wonderful splash page that uh, you see Namor flying over it, and we see this big hulking thing, which reminds me a lot of Tundra from Alpha yes. Flight. Yeah. Uh, same kind of big glowing red eyes and a big undefined maw, and it's kind of hulking, and it's it is it's monstrous. It, it is this thing is the size of a couple of city blocks. Uh, that um, he does. Uh, I, I, I forgot my point. I got so caught up in the. Uh, I got so caught up in the artwork. Um, I was thinking that uh, this also reminded me of Krakoa, the island that walks like a man. Yes, yes. especially uh, the eyes. Yeah, the X Men. Men. Uh, uh, special edition two. I don't know, the beginning of the new Uncanny X-Men right. uh, story where they introduced the new team. Oh, what well, my point was, it doesn't seem to, it seems to acknowledge him. It seems like it's looking at him, but it doesn't attack him. It just, because uh, then he goes into a flashback of what what led us to this point in like a six panel. And then it, it just just turns. It doesn't seem to be interested in him. It turns. It's heading towards New York, and that's when the the police, the news helicopter, um, uh, reaches out and says, "Hey, you know, we we've got trouble. I know I know you don't have any love for surface people, but you know, can you can you do us a solid?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm heading that way anyway. Yeah, I'll carry him." So he flies him out, which I think is odd that it's an it's an awfully this is like a 1950s era helicopter with a bubble top, something like something you see in Mash. That seems a little yeah. outdated for um, for a news outlet. They would have, I think, more modern helicopter. But uh, yeah, you're right. But, I don't know much about helicopters, but uh, that yeah. that is the image of that bubble bubble headed thing. Yeah. Well, and it's uh, it's several times they were brought up that the the pilots. Again, you know, they're asking for help and they basically say, you know, we know you don't you don't have to help us, but will you? And he does. And then later when he drops them off, they uh, they thank him and say, hey, if we can ever repay you. And he thinks to himself, you know, that's unlikely. You know, the day that I need help from surface people, uh, it will be a sorry day indeed. So he's it's still showing his arrogance there that, you know, he has. He has no love for surface people, but he's not going to let him die unnecessarily. Um, and then we get to the this. Um, I think Byrne does a good job of showing just how massive this thing is because the same seems is towering over. I don't know how where the Verrazano Bridge is, but it looks like it's towering several hundred feet. This is like celestial size. Um, just, and then they are just somehow they've they've uh, they're hitting it with some kind of I don't know if this is a fire retardant foam or what they're putting on it, but it doesn't like it. 
I'm trying to find that spot where they talked about the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Oh, I see it. There it is. Okay. Yeah, and you can barely see the bridge at the bottom because you see this big yeah. black mass, which is the 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 thing. Um, it says the south southernmost tip of Long Island, so maybe it's still heading towards Manhattan. Yes. Um, that he does again. He rescues the guys. You know, he's um, he knows the boats are too slow. It's 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 about to kind of swamp them, and he pushes them out of the way, and then it kind of like a this thing is almost like a like a hurricane or or a some kind of a um, force of nature the way it moves, and it just engulfs him, and that's when he sees uh, all these. And what it doesn't um, we can't talk about it a little bit. He just sees these kind of they look like kind of yellowy globs of something. You see people in, just suspended inside them, like some kind of gelatin or something, like a flying amber. And he pulls one out, and that's when the, the, the scientist with the covered face did. I didn't bring this up. Did you get, when you first see this woman, starting to let, or this, um, with the, the her face is covered, and obviously she's just figured, and that that figure, this has to be a reference to uh, Conscious of the King, the Star Trek episode, because Kirk has uh, somebody he knows that he thinks when they've when they encountered uh, Kolos, he's got a face covering almost exactly the same way. It covers up an eye, kind of around his chin, and one half of his face, and that's what and caught that reference. Since this book was being produced in the 90s, I was thinking that it was taken from the Phantom of the Opera. That too. But if you look at, maybe I'll, I'll post it on Facebook to, as a comparison. It looks almost exactly like it's black. It looks kind of satiny, finished. Um, but you're, It could be, because I think probably Phantom was probably um, very popular at this time. If uh, you want to say that this is uh, symbolic. It could also be a representation that um, you know that she may be telling half truths. That half of her face is human and half is uh, shaded in darkness. The disfigurement is is so strong, so obvious, um, and they give an explanation in here for how that happened. But uh, you you don't just create a, a disfigured person uh, out of just to make it distinct. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be an explanation well, we need yeah. more info on, and eventually we'll get that. Right. As as not those, too. those yellow tinted pods that the people are in, two thoughts on that. One, what year did The Matrix come out? The 99. So this is... So this is before that. Before The Matrix, yep. Okay. Well, that's one, one thing that I thought of. The other thing is, later on in this series, we will discover that there's a particular person that is... Uh, preserved in in a similar type of a bubble, uh, but it's going to be about ten issues, maybe twelve issues further down the line. So let's not spoil that one. Yep. Yeah, that's coming up. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, and they don't seem to be any worse for wear. I mean, the the doctor speculates that they could be some type of um, might be some manner of storing and or digesting its food. 
and it must be storing it because the people don't seem to be any worse for wear when she's brought out. She doesn't seem to be have any damage other than she's kind of disoriented and sick, and that that's when we get the that they had uh, not that they so much programmed, but they said some some of the tests showed that the protoform had a embryonic telepathic ability, and they enhanced that. So when you go back and look at it, when it first appears, it's kind of a massless um, form. And then it attacks Namorita and attacks all the people on the boat. That's when it takes more of a humanoid shape because the doctor speculates that it can draw from these people that are all cocooned into it to form kind of a rudimentary um, intelligence. It says like maybe a dog or cat level. Except at the end, we find that it actually voices, you know, it says mother. And it, we're trying to make this thing a little more sympathetic. Uh, and then it and then it just kind of, um, well, the this scramble virus that um, Namor injects into it. And the doctor tells her that the, she thinks the people in the cocoons will be uh, protected but it will scramble the DNA of this creature. And it does, it kind of falls apart, just becomes uh, all this mass just kind of floods down and it, you see it uh, kind of burying the doctor. And then it just kind of, the last page is just flooding New York. So it's like, there's tons and tons of like, what I can just assume is like raw sewage is just collapsing. It's like popping a balloon. It's just collapsing onto, into into the, all these buildings. I love the sound effects in this uh, for this issue, especially when he's ripping when Namor is ripping open the pod to free that woman. The blorsh. Yeah. yeah, what a great word. But then later on, when the monster yells, "Rar," you know, very. Um, very effective use of sound effects. Um, not overly done, but I like that. No, and it's it has changed a little bit. If you look at, or maybe it's just from the front cover, when he's drawn this thing, it is kind of predominantly green. But throughout the issue, it's gray. It's grays and uh, blacks with some maybe highlights of yellow. So it's never, maybe that's why it seemed like it was, or maybe it's changed because in the previous issue, maybe it was a little more green. But this is just kind of a grayish, almost like um, gray glop that, um, that, and it seems to kind of, well, he said it burns when he was in it earlier, that it feels like he's in acid. Um, when he first has to swim to the middle of it to release. And this, we won't talk about it here, but there are consequences to this gene scrambling that he releases with inside this creature coming up next issue. Yeah. Uh, as we get to the end, uh, she's fighting with Jerry. I don't think we ever get a last name for Jerry. No. But uh, she makes reference to, you know, we're going to wait for our son. Yeah. And he has made a comment just before saying, I lied, all right, the way you've been lying to the police and the Submariner. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, just red flags left and right that something's <laughs> not right here. But well, boy, that next to the last panel or page when the creature says mother and then collapses, that's a heartbreaker. Um, feel real well, simple for it at that right. point. Right. And I think that's the point that it's, it's um, like, you know, we'll go back to Carlos Frankenstein. You know, they didn't ask to be created. And that's where the, your sympathy comes from. They are, yes, they're monstrous. Yes, they're doing damage. Yes, they're harming people. But it's not their fault. You know, they are, they are, uh, you know, and it, and it, it says mother, I think. And it, the way he's drawn it, it's a much more sympathetic face. It does. Yeah. Its eyes have gone to white. It looks Keeps a little lost. Eyes. Right. It looks a little lost. It doesn't know. You know, it's probably just coming to terms with its own creation. And it, I, I guess it sees or maybe it senses um, Carolyn because she's the only one it shows kind of getting covered in this goo. But um, that's when she because you see it looming over them when when he's Jerry, this Jerry is trying to to leave and she belts him and he falls to the ground and basically they're like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna wait for our son, meaning we are either gonna pay penance for what we've done or you know, we have to uh, somehow uh, it's a price we pay for what we've done. And you're right about her him saying that she's been lying. And maybe that is the the two facedness of her disfigured face is showing the the i think she says later when the guy she says the guy breaks in her flashback the guy breaking in um he throws chemicals in her face doesn't say i'd assumed it was acid it's very like two the two-faced villain uh she says as i writhered on the floor agony burning into my brain the guy grabbed the substance and he basically flushed it down the toilet um, she, I thought she mentioned that she that her being disfigured was kind of her price to pay before um, for what she's created. That may come later on. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's not a lot of that. Is a great uh, word for when he opens that cocoon. There's not a lot of other sound effects or onomatopoeias for when the creature is kind of moving about or uh, we get a lot of screams from it. But you think he would come up with some great words for the yeah, for the way this thing is kind of oozing and slopping around and. um, But he doesn't, which is interesting, but. Well, that leaves on a leaves on a kind of a big cliffhanger. We know what's going to happen. Well, at first, I thought that this was going to conclude at the the end of this issue, as it was coming out. But it's like, uh, we'll see. We'll it kind see of it. concludes, but it it we will say this: it concludes next issue with more stuff revealed, and then we immediately start off into the next um, storyline leading up to. 
starts leading up to kind of the story that's hinted at the beginning of your issue with the the doctor and the shadowy figure in Berlin. But that's that's still to come. I thought it was, and I don't, I vaguely remember this when I read this off the off the newsstand, um, of him fighting this big sludge monster. Yeah, it does not not a major figure, but you know, no. I think these are being written as in dyads in two two part stories. Now, although this one slops over into three, um, but. Uh, as we'll discover, not for for long. Um, Byrne may be shuffling pages to to as we discussed earlier to put a subplot mm-hmm. earlier, yeah. and that uh, he may have have plotted this out as two distinct issues, and then decided to overlap and slur it just a little bit. I don't know. Um, I enjoyed it as it was coming out. I didn't particularly care for this. Excuse me. This Dr. Carolyn, I don't care for her character. And next issue, I'm going to be even more repulsed by the character <laughs> of Ed Hunter. But, uh, you know, it, it's un, it's done for effect. He knows where he's going. He has a carefully thought out story and he's pacing it out and telling his tale. And I, you know, I enjoy it. I went for the ride on this series and, and really, really enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, and it doesn't, he's not. He obviously has this kind of ecological idea running through these issues, but he doesn't really kind of pound you over the head with it. He's, you know, obviously this is a, you know, there is a real thing. They were dumping waste, you know, a hundred miles off into the ocean. And he's just taking that and, and, and kind of made a little message out of it, but he also made a good little adventure story out of it. So it's not, it's not being, uh, you know, he's not bludging you with 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 a, with a trying to get his point across, right? And and uh, yeah, I've, I've been joining you so far. I mean, we the one we've covered so far. So, um, well, speaking his, of things that were going on in the '90s at this time, um, if this will become more significant later on, but uh, the. the um, reunification of Germany, East and West Germany, mm-hmm. uh, happens in the 90s, and that will play into uh, into the, the various story arcs that are coming down the road. Right. right. And we've talked about this. When we get to those issues, I think that's a three-issue run. I think it's 10, 11, 12, or 11, 12, 13. No, 10, um, 11, 12, I think you're right. We've covered those. We covered those previously on our show. So we may, we probably won't recover them. We may either post that, those episodes as like a rewatch or re-listen, or we may just give it a cursory, these are the, a quick rundown of what happened, and then we'll just skip to the following issues and pick up our coverage there. Yeah, I've read ahead. I got to uh, 13. I'm really looking forward to that. I like that issue a great deal, as we'll we'll get to. Well, that Anything those issues are nice. Cover? Yeah. What was that? Anything else we need to cover? We're I think we're possibly we're, up ninety yeah, minutes. We're, we're we're at our ninety nine mark. Yeah. No, I think this was uh this was a good little two two story issue story. It's um and it's 
and it's I will say this that when what's revealed next issue, it's not there are shades of gray in everything. It's not just the the people that are the the villains are a hundred percent villains. There are it's again shades of gray. It's just there are shades of gray in their motivations, what they've done. There's no clear black and white villain or good guy in this. So I think that's um that always makes a more interesting character than just have someone just so blatantly written to be evil for the sake of being evil. Um, and then, you know, we get the, the, the big, uh, the big muck monster. That's the, the tragic, uh, character in his own story. So, and the artwork's pretty good. I love the, I'm loving the, the duotone he's still using in this. I know he drops it coming up and I can't remember what issue he drops it, but, um, it's not as nice as the underwater stuff from the last show that especially the scenes of him under in his pool, which we thought were so good. Um, but no, you got any final words? No, I think that's about it. All right. Um, well, uh, the only other thing that I could add, and it's not terribly important is, uh, again, I'm reading this in the trade paperback that, uh, is collecting one through nine. Um, Visionaries, I guess, is the subtitle by John Byrne. And in order to make those double page spreads play out correctly so that they are um, displayed right, they have an extra blank page that they need to fill. So uh, whoever's put this together, the production team has excerpted from various issues the figure of Namor just as sort of a pinup. Mm -hmm. In the old days, they'd be called a Marvel Masterworks pinup. But they've excerpted uh, an image of Namor from the cover of this last issue, um, which we didn't talk about very much. But uh, it shows him flying over top of, of the, the fist of Sludge, or we'll call the, the creature Sludge. Um, and they've excerpted just the figure and turned uh, Namor maybe 45 degrees uh, so that he's... Uh, now, I see they've altered it, actually, just slightly. Maybe that's not where it's from. But anyway, they've got a pinup of, of Namor in between this issue and next. So if you're yeah. following along or you want some additional content, uh, you could look up this uh, John Byrne Visionary trade paperback, although it ends with nine. So you're not going to get the, the uh, 10, 11, 12 trilogy that we were talking about earlier. That's that's all I've got. All right. Well, my last comment, and I, I just now realized this, he has not, I think it's because he was in his, this all takes place from when he was in his business suit. He's not wearing his bracelets. He's not wearing his wrist uh, bracelets that he always wears at all in this issue. And that's, I guess, because when he was in his suit, he wears his trunks under him, but he doesn't wear the bracelets, I guess, because he was in court. So throughout this whole thing, he's not wearing, he's just wearing just his trunks. I've not seen the bracelets at all. In well, any of these stories, I'm flipping through this trade. I don't see maybe, them maybe, anywhere. Uh, maybe he just decided not to draw them. Interesting. Hmm. I haven't caught that choice. Yeah. Well, uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can, we'll give you the, the road down here. You can reach out to us at gottagetburned at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook. So where we will post the shows, uh, you can write us a, uh, a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called now. Um, but 
most case, uh, probably email is the best way to get a hold of us. We will, po- like I said, we'll post the show on Facebook, and you can leave comments there. Let us know, you know, how we're doing. You know, if you, you're sick of me hearing me and Kirk talk about this, if you want to hear us talk about something in the future, just you know, we're open to any kind of suggestions. And we're doing a little more of these kind of um, two-man shows uh, we've been doing. Cause I know I have one coming up with, and probably by the time you hear this, it's already been out, with Brian and, and his son Chris are doing some Batman issues. But Kirk and I are continue to cover Namor until we run through the burn run. And then, who knows, we'll pick something else. So... If that's it, I will uh, thank you, Kirk. It's always a pleasure to to, uh, record with you. Thank you. And until the next time, Kirk and I will be in the deep end. Out of the polluted waters it came to become the most fearful menace that ever threatened mankind. (laughs) Feeding, growing ever more deadly on smog, only one force dared stand up to its overpowering evil. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. And the nobles come down there, prince of the deep, so beware in any demon. Lord Namor of Atlantis is the prince of the deep. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.